Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to another week, another episode of Certified Forgotten. We are still, to the best of our knowledge, the only podcast that brings you horror films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. If there's another one that you found, please tell us so we can sue the shit out of them and reclaim our rightful place in fan culture. I'm Matt Monagle. I'm one half of your Matt host, as always, and I am joined by my partner in crime, my buddy, the guy whose hair is even longer than mine after one year of quarantine. It's Matt Zanotto. How are you, friend? My hair is very long. I, that is that is my being now. It, I just don't have a personality outside of my hair. So the longer it grows, that's just how we how we're doing, I guess. You know, it is going to lead to work at some point. Somebody's going to be like, oh, Matt Donato, he's the guy with the really long hair. Yeah, have him write something about Carrie or something. I'm wondering if I should go to like when I can go back to an office, like if I show up with this hair just one time, because like all my coworkers don't follow me on like social media and stuff like that. So if I walk back in there with this hair, I really want to know what's going to happen. Fair enough. Also, it's super cute. You think your coworkers haven't found your social media yet. So just throwing that out there. They know everything, buddy. I like to think. All right. Well, hey, before we talk too much about your hair and your coworkers at your real job, we should probably also talk uh, uh, about today's guest and about today's film. So Donato, will you do the introductions for me, please? As I always do the introductions. Yes. Let's hope I don't mess this one up as I do in the back end. Sometimes <laughs> I bring to you the blogging banshee who you've read on Fangoria who you can now read on Certified Forgotten and plenty of other places. We are bringing you Molly Henry. Hello. Welcome to the podcast, finally, after writing for so long for us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I still remember tweeting at you or DMing you and being like, I hope this was like known, but you can come on the podcast anytime. And you're like, well, now I know. And I'm like, we should have told you so much earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least we got to it eventually. That's what really matters. Yeah, we we definitely we've we've been guilty of that in the past. Where we've been like, this person would be a great guest, and then we just like never, you know, like you and Christine and a few other folks, where we're inviting you on the show now and recording with you now, and we're like, we should have fucking done this like ten episodes ago. Like, where what, what were we thinking? Where was our heads at? That's an excellent question that I wish I knew the answer to. No, I'm just kidding. You guys are fine. <laughs> I was gonna say, tell us tell us where our heads are at. Please answer that for us. Um, I mean, it it could just be you're not used to the long hair and maybe it's just it's distracting you guys. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a lot going on. It's very true. This is year two of quarantine. Um, so I think at this point, everybody is forgiven for pretty much everything. It's just the yeah. purge 24 seven <laughs> around here. Like any everything is legal because we're barely keeping it together. But if you if you're a fan of the site, you already know Molly stuff because she's like clockwork. She's with us every month. She's doing another deep dive into another really good movie and bringing the insights that only she can bring. We're going to talk about uterus horror and what, you know, the, the immeasurable amount of value that that's brought to Certified Forgotten in a minute. But before we get to that point, uh, we want to talk about early days. You know, we we talk to a lot of really cool horror critics. We get to hear kind of the backstories and the thing that I realized is like, there's some folks that I kind of know how they got started, like those early stories, how they got into the genre, things of that nature. And there's some folks that I don't know. And Molly, you're in that latter category for me. I don't know your horror origin story. I don't know how you kind of fell in love with the genre and those first things that led to you being the prolific writer you are today. So regale us. I'd love to, I'd love to hear what, what those <laughs> early films were, what those early connections were for you. So you're talking like deep dive going back to the, to baby Molly, baby Molly, <laughs> baby Molly, who is watching, who is watching horror movies and being like, there's a column in this, however old that was. I mean that I, I was practically baby. My, my first horror film was when I was four years old. Uh, it was a nightmare on Elm street. My, my sister's nine years older than me, so her and a friend were babysitting me, and they thought it would be a really awesome idea to have me watch that with them. 
<laughs> it was not. They, my parents also came home early and my sister and her friend ran to go keep my parents from seeing what was going on instead of turning the movie off and left me alone with Freddy Krueger. So that, that was fun. <laughs> but it, while it was very traumatizing at the time, obviously it turned into something great because I basically my entire life have absolutely loved horror. Like early films, like that's always been a huge part of my life. Monster Squad was a huge part of me becoming a horror fan. And even like older films like Creature from the Black Lagoon was an early one that I saw a lot. Um, and it's just, I've always been really interested in horror and loved the genre. And it wasn't actually until I'm, I've lived in the Pacific Northwest most of my life, but for a few years I lived in Arizona. And while we were living there, I was annoying the shit out of my husband <laughs> because we would be watching a movie, a horror movie specifically, and nine times out of 10, I would be able to tell him what was going to happen at the end before it happened. <laughs> he hated that, but mm. he was like, you should just write your own horror movies. And that is not something at this point I am confident doing. I'm just now starting to dabble in that maybe. Um, but I was like, you know what, what if I just started doing reviews? So 2015, January 2015, I started my website, The Blogging Banshee, and just started writing reviews. Um, and I mean, it would, it would just be, I started out kind of doing like random films, and then I tried to focus more on new releases so I could stay current and up to date. And it was actually uh, Monty Yazzie, who is um, the director of International Horror and Sci-Fi Film Festival. He was really instrumental in helping me get more into the actual film industry, not just as like a random person writing reviews of shit that I watched at home. Mm -hmm. But he he became a really good friend and like got me my first like press pass for a film festival and stuff. And I got to do press screenings and things like that and helped me kind of network a bit more. And uh, so that was kind of what and I like started a podcast at the time, which doesn't exist anymore. And. <laughs> all this crazy stuff that and uh it wasn't until oh geez um I don't even know I think it was maybe three three or four years ago I I branched out and started writing for other websites as well I think it was three years ago I don't know time time means nothing to me right now so. mm -hmm. <laughs> um I and I actually wrote for one of Monty's websites and uh then I started writing for like Nightmarish Conjurings and Gas of Grinning um, and that eventually led me to uh, Fangoria and Certified Forgotten, which is where I am now, mostly. <laughs> Let me ask about the writing thing, because, you know, on the show, Donato and I have talked about the fact that I always wanted to write and Donato never wanted to write. And yet we kind of ended up in the same place. So for you, be it criticism or thinking about telling your own stories through film, was writing always something you were like, I love this. This is something I'm good at. I, I write fiction or I journal or I, you know, I write marketing. Was writing always a part of it for you? Or is that something where you were like, I want to engage with movies. Writing seems like the easiest path. So I'm going to kind of explore this for myself. How, how was that relationship for you? You know, I would say that my relationship with writing is more recent. Um, I mean, I, I like, this is embarrassing for me to say, but like when I was younger, I wrote poetry and stuff. <laughs> and like, I even, um, this is a, not really a brag because it's so dumb, but I had one of my poems in middle school published in like the local newspaper and stuff. And <laughs> so, I mean, I definitely dabbled a little bit, but like my, my undergrad degree is in archeology. 
<laughs> definitely was not the path I was expecting to take. Okay, you, you, we are recording. We've started recording with video on um, just so that we can have a good rapport with our guests. And the face that Donato and I just made simultaneously <laughs> when you said what your degree was in was it? I, I wish you guys listening could have seen that. Um, how, how do you do? How does that? How do you make that leap? Like what? What was you, I guess what was your career path before you started? Was there a point in time where you're like, this is this is what I'm doing? I'm definitely gonna be an architect. This is my career. Archaeologist. Archaeologist. Or, sorry, archaeologist. <laughs> I, I was I got the first couple of syllables. Yeah, right. you got the arc, arc right. Yeah. Arc. <laughs> I was the kid that when I was nine, I had a subscription to archaeology magazine, even though I didn't understand anything that was in there. I would say that and zoology are probably the two things that I've had an interest in for the longest amount of time. But <laughs> And I want, my ultimate goal was I wanted to do field work, but I wanted to be a, a professor. I wanted to be a college professor teaching archaeology. Um, and when I was getting my undergrad, I had a really great experience. And my I had one professor that I absolutely loved that was like the very stereotypical, like way too old to be teaching kind of absent-minded professor kind of thing. And I loved him and he would bring his dog to office hours. And it was great. <laughs> But in my, I just remember in my last quarter, in one of my last classes, it was being taught by a PhD student. And he told me that the unemployment rate for archaeology PhDs is like, I think it was like 75 or 80%. Oh. And that's also like, that's in general, but I, I would have been a woman in a very male dominated field. So that probably would have been an even more daunting number to look at if I was looking solely at women PhDs. Um, so I was basically like in my last quarter about to get my bachelor's and I was like, fuck that. <laughs> I'm not going to try to pursue that anymore. So then I like took a few years. I think I, I graduated in 2011 and it wasn't until like 2018 that I decided to finally get my master's. And that was after I'd already started writing and kind of found my love of writing. So then I got my master's in professional creative writing. It ended up being for the best. And it's, but it's definitely when I tell people that they're like, wait, what now? <laughs> so when, when I'm taking away from that for, for the purposes of you as a writer, then is your, it's the research component, right? Like you're used yeah. to doing the research. You're used to finding those archival things. You know, it's in your blood to say, I'm not just going to write a piece, but I'm going to go source a bunch of shit and like really do my homework and find out what people before me have said about this film that I'm writing about. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're good too. Cause even <laughs> it's funny that you say that cause I didn't really put it together, but one of the things that I like am looking at writing for my first actual screenplay, the only thing I've done so far is all of the research for it. <laughs> so yes, you are correct. I see. I see the pieces. I see how they fit together. And honestly, with writing reviews, I actually I'll do a lot of research about the film, but I'll try not to read other reviews because I I don't want them to influence my opinions about it. And I, I'm always afraid that that's going to happen if I read other people's reviews. But mm. I'll definitely do a lot of research about the film itself beforehand. Yeah, that that's the hard, fast rule of reviewing in the sense that I do the same thing. I do the exact same where I'm not going to touch another review, even open it, click it until I get mine in paper, because it's so easy to have those little influential things. And even mm. the times that like, you know, I'll be hired to do the interview and the review and me kind of just even being a little not leery, but you go into an interview and all of a sudden it's a movie you're 50 50 on and the director gives you this fantastic interview and you start liking it a little more and stuff like that. So <laughs> it's it's so hard to do that stuff. And that's why I like the research aspect. And maybe that's why I like reviews so much 
and I do like writing features. I do it as whenever I can, but I do gravitate towards reviews because I can react. I can watch a movie and I can just give you exactly what my thoughts are on it. And, you know, outside looking up the film itself and the data that goes along with it, uh, just thinking about like what Monogle said before, like I started thinking about my life and I'm like, oh, of course I'm gravitated to the thing that's less research work because I never wanted to do that stuff. I never, as Monogal said before, I'm not the guy who liked writing in high school and even middle school and all that stuff. I hated it because I had to research all these topics I didn't care about and write about things I didn't care about. And now I have the opportunity to write about things I do care about and I've eliminated the research as much as possible. Donato, we'll get you, we'll get you over the hump someday. We'll get you to love <laughs> writing someday, buddy. Just hang in there. Just keep writing. Eventually you'll love it. I mean, I think I've done that for the last decade. No, maybe. you're almost there. You're close. <laughs> you're you're going to get there someday. I have faith in you. Well, Molly, let me ask a little bit about, um, cause you talked about growing up in the Pacific or spending most of your life in the Pacific Northwest, right? Talk to me a little bit about community. Um, obviously online and on Twitter, we're able to sort of break down all those geographical barriers and kind of build a community of like-minded horror fans. But certainly for like festivals and things like that, the Pacific Northwest is not, not, not on the same tier as your New York or LA. So how do you, how do you find yourself engaging with the horror community online and offline now that, you know, you, you have your voice, you're writing about things, you're, you know, you are part of this network of people that are horror fans. Do you find that that translates into the real world at all for you? Or is it kind of something you do just online? It, it depends. Like when I was living in Arizona, I I was living in the Phoenix area and holy shit, is there a great horror community in Phoenix? Like I was really surprised by that. Um, so I have a lot of really good friends in the horror community there. I've gone to a couple horror specific film festivals in Portland, but I live in a very, very rural area, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so I pretty much don't ever leave my house unless I am going someplace not in the town where I live. <laughs> so most of my in-person interaction are if I'm going to a festival, if I'm going to a convention. Um, and it's definitely changed quite a bit since I, I started writing and, um, have written for other places and been on podcasts and things like that. I guess it would have been 2019, but yeah, it's, it's hard to do math with quarantine year. Mm-hmm. But, so in 2019 was the first time I'd ever gone to Midsummer Scream. That was a very strange experience for me because I, I was there for press. I was there to do coverage for Nightmarish Conjurings. But <laughs> it was the first time I had ever gone to a place and people recognized me from the internet, which was really a, a bizarre experience because like I... I consider myself a nobody. Like I, I just write about films. Like it's, it's not like I'm a director or an actor or anything like that. So it was super weird. Like I just remember specifically going to a booth and looking at some pins and it was like a website that I followed on, on Instagram and the person running the booth who owned the shop recognized me and was like, fucking Banshee. And I, it was just, it was very strange. So it, I almost feel it's cool. It's really cool to be recognized because you don't expect it. But it's also, I feel like my in-person interactions, I am so awkward, like so fucking awkward (laughs) that I probably come across as a bitch in person. So I apologize to anyone who's met me in person. If that happens, I just don't know how to interact with humans. But I do most of my interacting online, primarily through Twitter because I have no life. So I'm tweeting constantly. No, we, we don't say we don't say we have no life. We say we're building a personal brand. There you go. We're, That's we're true. We're building a personal yes. brand. Um, and 
I feel like my brand has, my personal brand has changed a bit because I used to be very much, I tried to stay as neutral as possible with like, like, cause there's always shit going on on Twitter and like all this crazy discourse. And I, like, I tried to stay neutral. I didn't want to get involved. And part of that was because I thought it was better for my quote unquote brand to be neutral. But, <laughs> but then it kind of got to the point where I said, fuck it. I don't care anymore. <laughs> and I was like, if people aren't going to like me, they're not going to like me no matter what I do. Um, So I, which is, we'll probably get to this later, but that's one of the reasons why I started writing my uterus horror article. But even like I, especially with all the stuff going on with women in the horror community specifically, like I've become way more outspoken about shit that goes down in this community and speaking up for people and speaking against certain people. And it's probably shit that I wouldn't be as brave to do in person, (laughs) but actually, you know, that's probably not true. Cause I, I get, I get mama bear mode really easily. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would never, I would never defend myself in like in an in-person situation. But if I saw someone messing with somebody that I knew or that I cared about or whatever, Um, I, (laughs) it would not be pretty (laughs) for the person that was going after someone that I cared about. Um, even if it was just like an acquaintance, I definitely get into mama bear mode. And I've, I've done that a few times on Twitter. Um, (laughs) sorry to anyone that's been on the wrong end of my wrath, but (laughs) if they are incurring the wrath, I'm assuming it is deserved. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I mean, if you're, if you, if I'm coming after you, it's because you, were a monumental piece of shit and totally deserved it. So, especially if I'm doing it publicly on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So, Donato and I have talked about that too. Uh, you know, kind of that that distance element, right? Like, if you're up close and personal to a lot of this stuff, you know, the positive element of that is that it you are in a position to enact real change, to have important conversations with the people that are in the mix, creators, filmmakers, the community. There, there is a nice up close and personal element there. But the nice thing about maybe having a little bit more of a distance is that it, you it does empower you to not really worry about keeping those relationships steady, right? Like you can kind of come in, you can pull the pin on the grenade and drop it and be like, let's have a hard conversation about X, Y, and Z, right? So like there are there are positives and negatives to both sides of it, I think, in terms of, of how you engage with your community and how you work towards the betterment of the community. But you know, the, the one thing that I, I do believe um, is that it takes both. You know, you need you need people on the inside that are willing to put in work, but you also need people on the outside that are going to kind of say, hey, let's have a conversation about this. And so I don't know, like I, I'm always I like the I like having a good mix of folks in my orbit that are kind of like the self-declared outsiders, but also folks that, that are part of the community and are like, hey, I'm putting in the work a little bit. I feel like through that mixture is is how we improve as a community. And I also think that there is an idea that brands have to be safe and brands have to be these things that are easily digestible by the public. So put on a happy face, put your brand on and that's fine. And Mm -hmm. I have fallen into that myself and I have fallen out of that in the last about year, I would say, um, where I'll, I'll give myself more credit and say like it's it's been a few years of me doing that. But, you know, there were definitely times where I was starting up where the idea was don't mess anything up. Don't ruin anything before you get to it. Just play nice and just do the thing. And maybe I still do play a little too nice at times. But if there's anything that this entire last year of our lives, this whole situation has done, uh, it has worn me down to the point where I have no problem being outspoken anymore. And 
I'm in this weird place where people don't know what to do with it at times because I'm the one saying it. And usually I'm the nice guy. And usually I'm the one that just kind of like, I am the, the described golden retriever of horror Twitter. Like people yes, have yes. said that. And <laughs> 100%. I am that most of the time. But now I started saying things about like social issues, again, women's issues, all these things. I've started like yelling these things at people and wait, why is the dog barking now? And it's this weird in between yep. where even the slightest example of doing a live stream with Perry Nemiroff every Friday. And it's the only way my mom can actually like interact with me in some way. Like, and we talk, obviously we talk and do all these things, but she's like, I watched your live stream cause I wanted to see you. And it's funny. And then we have the conversations like, you know, when you say things about Trump or if you say things about the pandemic that people don't like, they're not going to like you. Older me might've cared about that more, but I'm at the point where I can go to my mom. I don't care if those people like me. Cause that's, actually not the brand I that's not the brand I want if that is the brand that I have where I'm catering to those types I don't want that brand so like I think I think there's like a little stigma of brand where we say that word but I think we've all found a way now to get around that and we've actually found a way to build a brand we can all have and you live in LA so it's too late for you anyway. right no my soul is dead I sold everything to go yeah, to LA I'm just, I'm just saying I'm just throwing that out there I mean, and that's so true, though, because I think that was kind of the turning point for me, too, when I started to be more outspoken, I because I was like, well, one, I mean, not to preach or anything, but being a woman in the horror community, there are automatically people who are going to hate me just because I am a woman with a voice in the horror community. Um, but again, like, if I'm being outspoken about women's issues, if I'm being outspoken about the fact that Trump is a piece of shit, like if I'm being outspoken about any of these things that are issues that are very important to me and people don't like me for that, then those are, like you said, those are people that I do not want to follow me anyway. So who gives a shit? <laughs> so it's, it's a balance. Like if it's something that I'm really, that I really care about, I'm definitely going to be outspoken about it. If it's something I'm kind of meh about, it'll, it'll probably depend on the situation, but. I've let the mez go. I have done this thing now where I focus on the issues and I focus on having fun. The mez, they're gone. I don't need to pay time to them anymore. And again, there are days where everyone's having the discourse and I'm just not involved in it anymore. And it's weird because I'm not involved and I feel like you kind of lose a little bit of people paying attention because, oh, he's not participating in the daily discourse. He doesn't want to be online anymore or do that stuff. And kind of like, yeah, if we're just going to bitch about bullshit all day online, like I really don't have time for that anymore. What the hell of it? It's, it's been an, it's been an interesting last year. Yeah. Some of that, that daily discourse stuff too is just so exhausting. It's there's something yeah. new every day. I cannot keep up with it all. I do this thing where I'll write another article while all that's going on. So it's like, I'm just going to focus on my work. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I'm just going to stay busy, focus on my work. <laughs> Boo, nobody cares that you're productive, Donato. But Donato's uh, productive. <laughs> All right, last question, Molly, for you before we start talking about the movie then. Because um, you did hint at it. We were going to talk about blo uh, Blogging Banshee, about Yurder's Horror for um, just a second. You know, obviously, Donato, Donato and I are, are big fans of the column, which is why we brought you to the site and have you do it every month. But and we know the answer because we talked to you about this a little bit via email and we've seen the column evolve and, and the topics that you choose to tackle. But if there's somebody out there that's listening to the show and hasn't checked out your horror, first of all, shame on you. But second of all, what was the, you know, what was the, the kind of the instigator for that? When did you decide that there was a specific type of film about a specific type of women's issue that you were like, I want to write about this. I want to build a canon around this and I want people to make these connections between these movies. You know, what's funny is that this, the single inciting incident that made me make a connection between all these films was actually an internet meme. <laughs> hmm. 
Um, it was one, it, I mean, I think they still c- come through Twitter occasionally, but it was the like picture of the lunchroom with the different tables and you had to say, which table would you sit at? Mm-hmm. There was a horror film one and the table that I immediately saw and knew that I would sit there, it was Carrie, Ginger Snaps and Jennifer's Body. And it was in that moment that it clicked for me, like, holy shit, these films really are, like, have so many of the same themes going on about young women and puberty and how women are perceived on the outside and the changes that they go through, like, physically and emotionally. It made me want to write about them. It's funny because uterus horror is the first name that I thought of for it. (laughs) It ended up working because I... I make a point in actually one of my first articles on Certified Forgotten was when I wrote about um, Sleepaway Camp. And I like I always make a point like I picked the name Uterus Horror because I want I wanted to piss men off. Um, Sorry, but it's true. Um, But you don't have to have been born with a uterus to experience uterus horror, Um, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to cover um, sleepaway camp um early on but basically uterus horror there it's coming of age stories essentially mm-hmm. but they're spe- specifically coming age stories of young women and i didn't want to just call them coming of age stories because i feel like historically coming of age stories have been about young men becoming a, or boys becoming men and as a result a lot of these uterus horror films like Yes, they they do fit into that subgenre, um, but because they're about women, most of the time they get kind of ignored when they are released. Like with the, I mean, obviously Carrie had huge names attached to it, so it did fine. But like most of the ones that have come after it, either bombed at the box office or like initially got horrible reviews and things like that, and it they eventually gained a huge cult following because more young women who love horror discovered them. Um, and eventually, like, obviously there are men who are fans of these films too, but mm-hmm. it's it was a way for women to see stories about themselves and experience that they have had within the context of horror. Um, and I, I, obviously we need more representation in general in like every possible category when it comes to horror, <laughs> but... I, I, I mean, I'm a woman, so I wanted to focus on the stories of young women. Um, and so it's, I've really loved writing uterus horror. I, anyone who hasn't read it, I've pretty much every month for like six months. I, no, it's been more than we're, I we're, Yeah, I, I was going to say, we're almost <laughs> coming up on like, we're in almost at a year. Yeah, we're almost at a year. It's, eight, it's eight or nine months. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. So for very for quite a while now, I've been doing monthly column for Certified Forgotten, and every month I focus on a different film that fits into the genre, and I kind of discuss, I mean, not just how it fits into uterus horror specifically, but like the themes in the film and how the women in it are represented, and um, it's been awesome. Like it's, I it's probably one of my favorite things to write. Like I love writing reviews, but writing about uterus horror has been awesome. <laughs> I, and it's it's interesting to see the responses that it gets from some people too because mm. some it's it's one of those things where you either love it or you hate it and it's usually a specific type of person that hates it so well and i think it's perfect in the way that it fits with certified forgotten because if you think about the way that monogle and i started the podcast just to discover films that were underappreciated at the time and horror films specifically 
in the era they were released and why they were. A lot of the conversation we end up having tends to go towards, well, Rotten Tomatoes critics didn't really like horror at the time. And Uterus Horror goes a step further. You're bringing the conversation to these films were forgotten. These films didn't get the love they deserved at the time. But you're also bringing up the fact that not only were Rotten Tomatoes critics at the time and honestly ignoring horror, but a lot of horror critics who were writing about horror and who were covering it, it was in this like dude bro era. And it was in this era where the female centric stories and the women's centered stories, they were getting forgotten for a completely different reason, but mm-hmm. it's an even worse reason that they were being forgotten. So this column, like the way it fits in the way that I just kind of hearing you explain it went like, wow. So like literally it's like, it's literally like a subgenre of certified forgotten somehow without us even like yeah. us even like pulling, <laughs> pulling that together beforehand. It all connects. <laughs> it all fits perfectly. Yeah. And I love, I love the fact that you cast a pretty wide net with this, right? Like if we talk about what uterus horror means to you, you're as likely to pull in sleepaway camp as you are raw, as you are like European films that deal with a lot of these issues too, big and small uh-huh. budgets. So what's, what is the most important thing to your column is the characters and the experiences they have. And that allows you to basically run wild across every different type of horror from slashers to atmospheric to what have you. And it, as, as a reader, it's exciting to me because I like being able to see these connections. And, you know, if, if canon building is basically about saying, fucking take these movies seriously, I'm going to connect them with dots so that you have to take them seriously because now they're a canon. Like that's 100% what you're doing is you're saying, here's a bunch of movies you should take seriously. They're part, I've built a canon around them. So now you have to listen and you have to engage with them um, as sort of these themes as more than just one-offs. You know, you have to engage with the idea of coming of age, the idea of puberty, the all of these concepts as part of like an overarching theme in multiple movies across multiple generations of filmmakers. And so you're like, yeah, okay. I, yep. Uterus horror is everywhere. I see it. Yeah. It's, I love it. And it, it's funny because I feel like I, it's something that we're seeing so much more of now. I, I feel like just in the past 10 years, we're seeing so many more films like that it's because we are getting more representation. And a lot of times they're still not doing super well when it comes to reviews. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that I am not going to stop championing. Cha- wow, I can't talk. Championing them. Mm. <laughs> that was a hard word. I shouldn't have chosen that. That was, that was a big word. That was a big word for the end of this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and it's, I, I mean, I will forever appreciate the two of you for giving the column a home. So thanks, guys. <laughs> hey, we've always, we've always said we're just keeping it warm until one of the really, really big sites comes and poaches you. So hopefully this is just a stop along your way. All right. Well, hey, on that note, we are going to dive into today's movie. Um, We're going back to camp in a different kind of way than the sleepaway camps of the world. So when we come back, let's talk about the highs. So if that really awesome music is playing right now, that means that this is the part of the show where we give a very special shout out and a very special thank you to our patrons. Uh, every week, every episode, we read two, two comments, two challenges, two questions that come to us from our Patreon network. And as always, Donato is going to put some words out there and we're going to have to react to them. Donato, what you got? The first one is very simple. It comes from Mr. Luke. And Luke has a message for the people that says, Protect your family, neighbors, and self. Get vaccinated when eligible. And that's it. You know, I love 
I mean, I knew that we have a good community of people in Certified Forgotten, but the fact that people are like literally using their blurbs to talk about vaccinations and we've had people talk about voter registration and all of that makes me feel good, Matt. Makes me feel like uh, like we're like we're doing the right thing here. Papa Luke is always going to take care of the peoples. And, uh, you know, if I could ever have a second dad, I, I'd hope it'd be Luke. But I but Luke doesn't want me because I'm sure his children are way better behaved than I am. <laughs> well, I can say that as somebody who is halfway vaccinated, um, I have my first of two shots. It's super easy. It's super simple. You have no excuse not to do it. Um, and I didn't have any real side effects other than a bit of sore, sore arm. So strongly recommend everybody should do that. I, the only downside is I own like 12 Zunes now, but whatever. Should I go into our next one, Mr. Monagle? What do we got? All right. So this one is going to come from Amelia Emberwing, who is our patron, but also... Our friend. Our friend, a known entity on the interwebs. And Miss Amelia has a message for the people that she hopes everyone will listen to and maybe even subscribe to. So the message is, with everything going on, it's hard to know where to start or how we can help. Meanwhile, the art that we used to heal, empower, and distract ourselves is more important than ever. The Pickety Witch is a combination of the two. So what that means is Amelia has started a newsletter, and we like to help our friends out around here, and we both subscribe, so we know the content's good. Newsletter.picketywitch.com if you would like to subscribe to Amelia's, you know, it, you're going to find out how to get involved. You're going to find out ways that are big, that are small, so you can jump in at any level. And also you're going to get pop culture takes and little reviews and tidbits from the internet. So I suggest giving it a subscribe. Yeah, and I mean, listen, I know that Amelia's a friend of ours and a very talented writer, but even if those two things weren't true, if she wasn't already in our orbit, what she's doing with the Pickety Witch is great. And it's great because she's putting the spotlight, she's using the platform to put the spotlight back on the grassroots organizers, on the nonprofits, on the activists that are doing the work, that are asking for help. If you follow Amelia on Twitter, you know, you have seen her talk about the fact that like, are you... Are you doing what the people on the ground need you to do? Are you supporting in the ways that they're asking you to support? And the Pickety Witch is a really, in addition to the fun pop culture stuff that she talks about, which is amazing, she really puts a focus on the ways that you can help. And if you spend all day long scrolling through Twitter and see one horrible disaster, one horrible miscarriage of justice after another, it can all seem a little bit overwhelming. Taking that, slicing that down, getting ideas for signatures, for donations, for you know, volunteer opportunities that are going to do the most work in the places they're needed the most. This is a great introduction to that. And it's a really good way for people that are maybe a little overwhelmed and haven't thought about how they can kind of get involved into this civic and activist kind of space. It's a good introduction to that. Um, and it really, it won't, it won't be too painful. The ideas that Amelia's giving you are stuff that you can really ease into that process. Yeah. And as someone who is easing into that process and who hasn't been involved for a lot of his life, it helps me tremendously because like I said, it's big steps, it's little steps. And even if you just want to donate a dollar here, that one little link is here. Or if you want to get involved in a whole anything of the larger scale, as Matt said, all these grassroots things, if you want to become way more involved, you're going to have those directions as well. And little gifts of Loki and Marvel characters. So it's a lot more digestible, as Matt's already said twice. Overwhelming is the word I would use that it is not. So it's easy to get into, easy to digest, and easy just to, you know, get involved, finally. Even if you're just waiting for the right moment. Plus A plus witch shit. That's 100% A plus witch shit. Witchy is in shit. The witch. Witchy shit, 100% A plus. Uh, now I'm just saying words that I don't know. Should we go back into the episode? Yeah, it's about time.
Hey, welcome back. So this week on Certified Forgotten, we're talking about The Hive. And a quick content warning for you. The Hive is a Nerdist film, which means that it does have a little bit of a connection to Chris Hardwick. You probably have your uh, your your memories of that whole experience and kind of what, how he ended up in pop culture's eyes. So if you are basically saying, I don't want anything to do with Chris Hardwick, the Nerdist or any of the properties that were contained therein, totally understand. This movie's probably not for you. For the rest of us, for those that are going to talk about the film, about the filmmakers and the, the cast, uh, The Hive is, is what the director has described as an anti-camp movie. Director David Yurofsky, who some folks might recognize from Brightburn, sort of a James Gunn disciple, he directed this film in 2014, and it is a story about a young group of friends who are working at a summer camp. Um, one of them wakes up and finds that somebody in the room is dead, somebody in the room is a monster, and there are a bunch of shitty, awesome, terrible things written on the wall that he has no recollection of writing them or what they mean. It has been described sort of uh, in posters and at the time when it was on the festival circuit or playing in, in a bunch of different places as Evil Dead meets Memento. And rather than get into the twisting storylines here, I'm going to leave you with that kind of lingering idea. Evil Dead meets Memento is a good place to start the conversation. So with all of that in mind, um, we've got a lot to talk about with this one because spoiler alert, this is the most I've ever liked a certified forgotten podcast movie. This is the film that all I, I, we've watched dozens, dozens at this point, 30 plus episodes. Um, we've, we watched different movies that our guests have brought to us and I fucking loved this one. This one hit me in all my sweet spots. So we'll get to that, but I want to start by talking about your selection, Molly. I know you gave us two choices and we picked this one. We're going to save the other one for a future episode. What was, what made you think the high, what made this be the movie you wanted to talk about on the show? Well, when I, when I found, found out the parameters of the films that you typically cover, I, I went back through all the films that I reviewed, trying to find one that would, would be interesting to talk about that also would have less than five reviews. And of all the ones that I reviewed, I only found two. And I'm actually, I'm shocked that this one was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hive, it was one of my early reviews. And actually in searching, I realized that I never put my review on Rotten Tomatoes. So it is now added Thank on Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> so that, it has three now. That helped for us. <laughs> um, but it's just, I was surprised I that it, it didn't have that many reviews because I... I don't know if I reviewed it now, if I would would necessarily have given it as high of a score as I did. I absolutely love it, but I like I gave it a really damn good score <laughs> the first time I watched it, and mm-hmm. I just it's not a film that you hear people talk about ever. The only other person that I know who has watched it was someone that I made watch it. So it was, and so it's. It's, I think it's a fun movie that horror fans would love if they actually watched it. So I, I was happy to have the opportunity to talk about it and kind of rave about it because I've always been a fan and for some reason it just never comes up in conversation. So let's have a conversation about it. Let's have a conversation. The one thing that I will say about this is this continues our trend of accidentally picking Fantastic Fest titles, which I feel like is the defining characteristic of Certified Forgotten is we're like, oh, great, a perfect movie. Let's talk about it. Oh, this premiered at Fantastic Fest. It just continues to happen to us over and over again. But Donato, I'm guessing you probably saw this at Fantastic Fest. Yep. I got Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell me about it. So here's the funny part of that. It premiered the year before my first Fantastic Fest, and I didn't catch it to review because I was at Fantastic Fest the next year and it came out in September limited release. So I like I have these weird memories of 
festival I guess festival casualties, I would say, because I go to a festival like Fantastic Fest, I have to focus on the festival exclusively. But then a movie comes out that I really want to get to, I really want to dive into, and I just can't. I can tell you Hellfest is another one. I was at South By and they didn't have screenings in Austin, so I had to wait on that one. But I remember The Hive specifically as a Fantastic Fest 2015 casualty because I was like, of course, it premiered here last year. Everyone saw it then. No one's talking about it now. You're right. Like when it came out, no one was really saying anything as it dropped. And I didn't get to it until about it was my decompression movie. So I knew I was I couldn't review it. I missed my option. And I got home like after an entire week and a half of Fantastic Fest. And I get home and I just want to watch something to like cool down, I guess, come back, ease my way back in. And I just put this on and everything that those poster quotes said is like 100% correct. And even more to that, the way I even wrote it down is like, it's kind of like Vincenzo Natale doing Evil Dead and then going into momentum as a young adult romantic comedy. Like it has all of those elements and I don't understand how they all work together so well. So I'm very mad I didn't get to like champion this one when it came out because to Molly's words as well, I don't know anyone that has seen this movie. When Molly even brought it up, I was like, so wait, the, number one, this qualifies. Number two, oh my god, I have someone to talk about this movie with because holy shit! I was genuinely, I was genuinely shook when I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes profile and I did not see your byline, Donato. Like, given the era when this was released and the fact that I knew you were a working critic by now, like, I was shocked. Molly, it was awesome to see Molly's byline on there. I was like, nine point five out of ten, amazing review. No wonder why we're <laughs> talking about this. But every, it feel like every fucking time we talk about a movie, it's Donato with We Got This Covered or somewhere, and he's basically like, it's two thumbs up for werewolves or whatever your reviews are. I was I was genuinely surprised, genuinely surprised that your name wasn't in here. And I was like, if Donato hasn't seen this, if Donato hasn't reviewed this, nobody has. And you know it's a big deal because I remembered exactly why I didn't review it. Like, literally, I had a story as to why I didn't <laughs> review it, and that's yes, how did. shook I was by the fact that I didn't have a byline up for that. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about um, the the film and the storytelling, right? Because like the Evil Dead meets Memento thing is, I mean, it feels like it should be sort of like a shitty throwaway line about a movie. It actually really super duper works with this one. Like there's there not there aren't a lot of movies that have a better this movie meets that movie execution than The Hive, I think. But on paper, there's a lot of reasons why this shouldn't work, right? Like the idea of the non-linear storytelling where you jump in and out of different timelines based on what the character is remembering, which is the core component of this film is as the character is trying to remember the events that transpired, he's, you know, the events are playing out in real time, but they're intercut with his memories that are jumping forward and backwards. He remembers some stuff that's more recent. He remembers some stuff that's that happened earlier in the movie. And it's such a like, I feel like I've made this joke before, but it's such like a blockbuster exclusive premise, right? Like such a thing that you would expect with some movie that has Barry Pepper and you find it like with the blue box that this is like, oh, we've got a high concept horror movie. It's such a thing that you're like, this can't possibly be good, but it works. So Molly, I'm going to go back to you. What is it? What is it about the way that they're letting this story unfold that works so well for the hive? You know, I, I've always been a fan of well-executed, um, like non-linear storytelling um it reminded me kind of, of of things like it doesn't involve time travel obviously but it reminded me of things like the triangle you were learning things as the main character is and I love when films do that and this film does such a good job because as soon as it opens it's so disorienting 
this guy looks crazy. He, like he has goo everywhere and there's weird glow and it's the room is a mess. The cinematography even like kind of <laughs> does some weird rotating to like almost make you a little dizzy. Right away, it, it establishes that we're only going to know what's happening as this main character is flirting it. And I think that's why it works so well, because we learn what we need to learn through the memories that he like his memories as he recollects everything but it's done in such a good pacing too they they don't draw anything out they they know exactly when you need to learn this information and they make sure that we learn it in a way that makes sense with the plot i don't know it just Mm -hmm. they do such a good job with it and it's the way everything comes together and like when you start to connect the dots and you have those aha moments it's just so, oh, I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's some good stories um, about kind of Yerovesky and his interviews has talked about the writing process. And a couple of the stories that he tells is one is that he basically wrote this in like a fever dream for like 90 minutes. He, over the course of 90 minutes, he kind of wrote, he had the concept that came to him pretty much full fledged. And he's claimed in interviews that while he did write 11 different drafts of this movie, he did, you know, over the course of four months, improve his script 11 different times it was tweaks, like the basic, the core elements and the way that these different timelines and stories interwove with each other was pretty much intact for the beginning. Now, if I were a screenwriter and I wanted to puff myself up a little bit, I might say the same thing. So I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that is the gospel truth, but there is a sense of cohesion to the way that these things are coming together that does support Yervesky's claim that this was sort of one concept that came to him, that he was working off like one uniform idea because you don't lose the threads the way that you do in a lot of movies that execute this poorly. Donato. Yeah, I was just going to say to the sense of, well, now you've given me more context, so that helps me a little bit more in the sense that it's very disorienting in the beginning. And for the cinematic reasons, for the narrative reasons, we are not supposed to know what's going on because it's supposed to be the most confusing at its beginning. Like, you know, as any kind of story in this nature is going to be. We're just thrown into this vessel through the main character and like we're seeing through his eyes and it gets so good at cleanly telling the story that unfolds in a way that i'm you know bringing up a triangle bringing up another movie in that elk i feel like a lot of directors try to play the confusion game and they try to do it for too long and you get stuck pondering things and questioning and all of a sudden there's so many offshoots firing around and it's easy to get lost in those kind of ideas. And it's easy to get lost in storytelling that is manipulating the audience to be confused. Like it wants you to be confused so it can get you with the aha moment later where you're like, oh, everything is clear now. This movie does it in such a way that proves you don't have to manufacture confusion for so long just to throw your aha moment in because again, we are very confused right along with the main character. We're we're right in those footsteps of learning things one by one, but it's still clear enough that we're not just wandering around the wilderness with no direction. Like, we are in step with this character, and every little blip, every little thing that he uncovers makes everything that much more crystallized. And I was just really impressed by the way that I never felt overtaken by these feelings of trying to you know, try to figure out what's going on or having a director that is beating us over the head with something to say, like, you don't know what's going on. Like, this is the thing you don't know. I I was very kind of it's it's respectful. I, I think respectful is the word there where the director wants you to be along this journey and he doesn't want to lose you, but he does want to keep you guessing. Yeah. And I think it helps, too, that he 
you know, in a lot of these movies, the, the general, the boil it down, the most basic plot is that boy meets girl, um, asshole boy meets girl, asshole boy is like, Ooh, maybe I don't want to be an asshole anymore. And then bad, terrible things happen to them and, and they kind of have to persevere, right? Like that is a camp story sort of, I, you know, we've seen a million versions of that in, in different camps, both horror and outside of horror. But I think what makes this interesting, one of the things that makes this interesting for me is by kind of mixing up the storyline and by telling it in a nonlinear fashion, um, Yervesky is actually able to back end the emotional lift of the film, which is like what happens when the girl that the boy likes gets sick, right? And that's not a spoiler. Everybody in this movie gets sick. It's not, it's not the kind of movie where nobody doesn't become sort of a spitting zombie type. But, you know, in a lot of these movies and a lot of horror movies, you know, it, it, it happens where the characters, you know, the significant others get sick early or they get killed early or something happens. And the whole rest, the whole back part of this movie is just trauma. And that's, that's fine. You know, for a lot of these movies, that's very pointed and very intentional and has a lot to say. But in my opinion, a lot of these films have sort of got so used to the fact that like we're going to kill the loved one's loved one so early in the movie that it just becomes sort of like this slog where you're like, oh, God, I don't want to watch this person suffer for like another checks watch, you know, an hour because the person that they wanted to be with forever is dead. And now we have to like sort of let it slide. And by reorganizing the way the stories weave together, Yurovsky is actually able to sort of make the bad stuff happen while still building in a more traditional sense, the romantic arc between the two characters, it works and it, it undercuts a lot of the issues that, you know, lesser horror and lesser slashers have, which is where they kind of remove the emotional connotation. The emotional stuff gets set up just to start killing. And then once the killing starts, they're like, they're fucking done with the character work. And this movie is building the character work and the monster stuff kind of in tandem in a way that really works. Yeah. And I think that honestly, it makes the movie, it's suspenseful and it's, creepy but it also kind of makes it more fun mm -hmm. um like there are a lot of humorous moments in the film and um especially early on when he's trying to remember things and he like is talking to a dead body and like draws the, her name on the wall and stuff over the body and so there which is really macabre but it's still funny to me delightful <laughs> absolutely delightful yeah so and i i think that by not just having it be, like you said, like this trauma early on and then dealing with it through the rest of the film, it, it adds a bit more of a balance to it. And it's a balance that I think not a lot of horror is able to pull off mm -hmm. um, by having the, the trauma and the emotional connection, as well as having these like kind of fun, lighthearted moments and the suspense, um, like it's everything ties in really well. Um, and I think if he hadn't told the story in this specific way, it would not have had that vibe to it at all. Yeah. And Donato can attest to the fact that and I'll, I want to hear what you have to say, Donato. So I'll make this quick, but one of the things that, that turns me away from a movie is if I get the vibe that it's mean and that's a hard thing to articulate, right? If a movie is mean, right. You know it when you see it, right? Like evil dead is the new evil dead is kind of mean. There are other movies that are, that are mean. They can be fun, but they're, they're mean and they have a little bit of a nasty streak, a little bit of a gleeful abusing of their character streak that can sometimes that for me, I'm very sensitive to. And it's why when we talk about torture porn, you know, whether or not that deserves the moniker that it has, it's what turns me away from it is like, there's a mean streak in those movies. I don't like the hive is on par with the body horror and grossness. You know, it is right there with evil dead in terms of what happens to these characters, but that meanness is missing that core element of like, we're, we're rooting against some of the characters or like we're enjoying what's happening in these characters. It's not present. It moves like a contemporary post-hostile 
slasher monster kind of thing. It has the grossness of a feast, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't have the mean streak. Yeah. And that's an interesting way to go into what I was going to say, because I was almost going to suggest that. There is a little bit of that mean streak, and here's why I think it works here and it doesn't work elsewhere, because you have a director who has studied under Gun and is like a disciple of Gun in a way. And I think that comes out full force in the hive where we all know James Gunn is very good at playing with characters who you should have no interest in and should probably hate. And yet you still kind of end up liking them. It's just one of the qualities he has as a screenwriter and filmmaker. Um, you know, he wrote Dawn of the Dead and there's characters in Dawn of the Dead that are disgusting. They are terrible people. Awful, awful. But yet we're still engaged in the story because of the way he still writes a character like that. And we're still not going to throw them away for just being a mean asshole. I don't know. Gun is good at that. I'm not saying the hive is on that level, but we do meet two male camp counselors in the beginning of the film who are I like I forgot the slurs they throw out in a way uh, in the first like few minutes of the film to, you know, they're, they're kids, they're kids saying things like uh, the, the F word and, you know, not fuck, but the other F word that like we won't say. And a few little lines here where I was like, maybe didn't need that, maybe didn't need to go that far, but it also does establish these kids as kids. And I know we don't want to say like kids being kids in the way that like it's an excuse, but it is kids being kids in the way that you're setting up characters and to set up characters, especially now who are going to be trapped, confined after an airplane crashes near Camp Yellowjacket and you have counselors in charge of children now being taken over by this goo that is, well, I think we get to the point where we can say the hive is named because it's a hive mind theory. And as that element starts and you now have characters who are on one side of a spectrum that is kind of just assholeish and douchey and the other side of the spectrum now sharing the same mind like that for me alone was such an interesting aspect of it and dealing with it and you still do you get the joke where you have the main character go to latch into somebody's mind and the first thing he does is go to a naked lady in a shower rubbing herself like yeah of course that's the first thing he's gonna do but in a way that's been established it's been established that that is the exact person he is and then there's actually like a moment where he does it one more time and it flashes back and he's like all right i have to stop like, it's weird, but that's growth. I don't know. Like, it's really interesting <laughs> the way that they play those dynamics. And I think a lesser filmmaker would not have succeeded doing that. And I think having a filmmaker that's whether that's studied under gun or even was just in the gun camp and had a little bit of that rub off. It, it comes off in a way that I, I see a little mini James Gunn in that film. You know, I might be reading too much into this, too, but I honestly think. I, it was the best friend that said the the stupid shit to the the kids. Mm. And it's, it, yes, it was unnecessary and probably didn't need to be in there. But I think one of the things that this film is really good at is, like, Gunn is creating characters that are, are very flawed. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad people, which is how it is in real life. But I honestly, like, thinking back on the film, I almost wonder if the whole point was to show like realistically of the four friends, the only one that isn't a piece of shit was Katie. And mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in one way or another, Katie was the only one that wasn't. And I think that that was very purposeful because it was showing like maybe the hive mind is right for wanting to take over humans and get rid of their free will and stuff because humans are assholes. <laughs> 
and the hive mind, obviously they're all going to, and like they, they make a point of showing how um, the, that one kid was being bullied by the other kids in the bunk. And with the hive mind, that's obviously not going to happen anymore because they're all one. It almost makes you think that maybe the, I, I don't know what to call it. It's not really monster. The, I'm just going to call it an entity. You, you almost think that the entity could be right in what it's doing because of these characters and these situations that it brings up. But then it's also that question, like, is it right? Or like, is individuality part of being human and we should be allowed mm -hmm. to do that? Like I said, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but that's kind of what I got from it. <laughs> no, and I think there's a fantastic little quote that I believe it's the main character who says, I believe it's Adam who has gotten enough into the bulk of what's happening. And he realizes that the hive mind is trying to take everything over. And the way he says it, it is like, it's one mess towards the same goal, perfection. And that's an interesting way to put it because visually we are shown a disgusting mess the entire time. It is just the cabin is slathered in black goo. Uh, the black light is used heavily in the sense where it's a nighttime scene most of the time, but the white chalk and the extraneous bluing, like electric blue veins and stuff like that on the characters. It looks so awful and it looks horrible and like perfection is supposed to be this thing that you know the, the dictionary definition of perfection should be something we all want to attain and yet it's being visually represented here as this thing that jesus christ could you imagine if everyone was just exactly the same and connected all times and the mess that would be so I, it's such an easy way to play with visual storytelling and I, like you don't think about it for so long you do think it's just something extraterrestrial or something that is creature forward and it's just effects for effects sake but then you hear that line and you realize, yeah, there's a reason why Adam goes in to check on the children and he goes into the cabin and they look like they're, they've been like disemboweled and all this stuff with the black goo coming out of them. But it's really just these like almost like maybe like the start of cocoons. Like, I don't even know. Like, it just looks like he's walked into a sci fi spaceship in a way. And it looks like something that none of us would want to describe as perfection. So I don't know. I, I was really thrown by that visual storytelling. And I don't think you were reading much into anything like, or reading too far into anything. Cause I think that's essentially that I think that's what he's trying to get at. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the kind of that visual element because I wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about Gary Tunnicliffe, who's one of the, the VFX guys here. So there's a really funny story where um, Yurovesky talks about the fact that he went and did a meet and greet when he was a kid with Tunnicliffe, who is a special effects guy that's known for working on the Hellraiser movies. He worked on Ginger Snaps. He's worked on Candyman. Like basically, if it's Clive Barker-ish, he worked on Feast, which is why I mentioned Feast earlier. He directed the last Hellraiser movie, Hellraiser Judgment, which is a, a bit of a um, mixed bag, depending on who you talk to in the horror community. But, you know, he talks about the fact that, like, I went and saw him as a kid and now I get to work with him and that's pretty cool. And it does, like, there is, for somebody that has spent his entire career basically making hell on earths, hells on earth, I don't know the plural of that, hells on earth, that he adds so much to this film in terms of what this, like, black light goo environment looks like. You know, it it's a probably a, a bit of an easy out to say that, well, you know, Yerovesky's worked on music videos forever. He did 50 music videos before he made this film. So, you know, it's got that music video vibe, but it's a little deeper than that. I think there's, there's nothing, there's nothing forced. There's nothing cheap. There's nothing aesthetic for the sake of aesthetic, right? We're watching this. I'm watching this for the first time in 2021 and a lot of music video horror films, horror films by music video directors 
don't always age that well because they're they're using the tools. They're kind of used to using the elements and the aesthetics that are trendy at any given time. This has sort of transcended time. This managed to make it through six years for me. And yes, the blacklight and stuff is a bit unlike anything we've seen in horror films. But what he and Tunnicliffe have created is is just something so gnarly and unique, but not not anchored to any specific point in time. It's sort of its own animal. So I, I want to hear what you guys thought about kind of the world building element of that and creating like this really interesting and goopy and gross and graphic environment. I think Donato, you weighed on a little bit. So I'll go to, to Molly first. I mean, I, I absolutely love the visuals. I mean, that it's funny. I didn't really put together that it was grotesque when they were talking about trying to achieve perfection. So that really puts a different perspective on it. It makes sense that they compare this to Memento also. But when I was watching it, obviously I thought of Evil Dead, but I also thought of um, 20 Days Later. Um, cause there's a lot of like some of the similar looks and like the vomiting goo. I mean, it's more blood, but vomiting stuff on people. And I mean, in a way it is a virus that's transmitted that creates this hive mind. And I love that it's very, there are certain scenes where it's really outrageous. Like when you see the cocoon kids and stuff. And, um, when you see Katie in the room with all the black goo everywhere, but for the most part, I think the effects are pretty understated. And I think that's why it works, because there's a lot of like the black goo and some of the the black light stuff. But for the most part, they kept it very grounded, which I think makes it kind of something that you can watch like however long you said it had been, six years or mm-hmm. whatever since it came out. Um, and it it still has the same impact because they didn't feel the need to go like, super grandiose with it they didn't feel the need to do cgi and even little things like the eyes that they did on these characters freaked me out more than anything greatest contacts greatest contacts in movie history by but not even close like it is this and something else is runner up but these are the best best horror movie eyes that i've ever seen in a film which is a weird thing to to like be like oh this movie has the best eyes but you know if you're walking away really fixated on one character choice in a horror movie odds are that the horror movie did its job really well and it's I what I like about it is that it almost creates the illusion of more than one pupil mm-hmm. in the eye, um, which again kind of goes to the hive mind thing. But it just, oh, it's so like that's those eyes will haunt me <laughs> for the rest of my life. Amen. So here's where I'll go with the effects because I, I I've already said I love the effects in this. I think it's great, and I agree they're understated in the sense that it's not about these grotesque kills; it's about the representation of the hive mind. That's where it gets. As Matt said, gnarly. That's where it gets all these like gross out vomit and black goo. Just ba- like you're just bathing in black goo at a, at a certain point. It's just everywhere, and like the characters can't get out of it. But the contacts, especially, are a good starting point because a lot of this film felt like the Evil Dead remake specifically. Like I know we used Evil Dead as the poster quote, and like it has been used over and over again because this is this is an iteration of Evil Dead. This is a riff on Evil Dead unique by the way I, I love the fact that it is a riff on evil dead and they get away with it because it doesn't look like any other riff on evil dead we've seen they actually do try to do something that's why i bring in the vincenzo and natali before because the way we're working with the hive mind these like super hard sci-fi elements like they're all the way up top on the sci-fi spectrum and it's not just a slasher like the way they have chosen to riff on evil dead is something that i don't think i've seen since even so like before then and after it's been six years after and it's doing all that stuff really well. 
But I will say, holy shit, this feels like Evil Dead, the remake, though, like down to so many details. Uh, number one, I mean, we're just going to talk about Jest, uh, the first character we see who's taken over and Jest hide in the chair and just looks exactly like our main character in the Evil Dead remake, like literally the black strands of hair, the face makeup. It, it's very reminiscent. We also get a scene later on where uh, the main character, Adam's crush, uh, I believe, Katie, Katie. Catherine Prescott, Skins. I, I like. I was trying to put the face together, and I was like, that's right, you're from Skins. I love Skins. But she has a scene where, well, Adam has to figure out how to keep his love alive, who is possessed by this horrible entity, as we've dubbed it. And he has to kill her, so the entity is no longer being as responsive, but then bring her back to life. Just like in the Evil Dead remake. And there are so many elements that... I could not stop thinking about the connection to the point where I was like, how much influence was taken? And I know, like, I know it's impossible because we're talking the evil dead remake. That's 2013. It came out and we're talking about a movie that premiered at fantastic fest in 2014. But these are like siblings. Like it, like the connections do not even make them like outside the same family. They seem like they're in the same family. And I don't, I'm not even saying that's a negative. I just think it's really baffling in the way that we can have two films that come out so close to one another. I, I don't think the time could like overlap in the sense that there was that much influence, but at the same time, again, like to me, like they're, they're brother and sister, like they literally are so intergrained and I, it's just so interesting to see that. Like, I don't know if you guys thought the same thing or. Oh yeah. I definitely watching it. I noticed visually they seem very similar and yeah, I it's, it's funny because she does um, Jess does look very much like, I can't remember the main character's name from Evil Dead, but she also, when she's not dead, she looks like the other girl that's also in the Evil Dead remake. (laughs) So she's kind of a combination of the two characters. She looks like Jane Levy in makeup and she looks like the other actress outside of makeup who I'm blanking on, but yeah. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because I, like you said, obviously there's no way that they could be intentionally that similar because of the timelines and stuff, but I'd be curious to see if there was any overlap like with people working on the films or anything like that. I don't know. It's just, it's a funny coincidence, but it makes sense because I love both of them. So <laughs> apparently I have a thing for films with lots of black goo. So. Yeah, for me to say that they are connected, again, it, it can be in no way a negative statement because I adore the Evil Dead remake. I love that movie so much. And, you know, and the performance that Jane Levy brings in that film, I think is so impressive as she plays a deadite. And I will say that translates over to the hive because everyone in their hive forms, they're, they're giving it their all like this little indie or I, I, you know, this tiny little movie that could is on the same level, I think, performatively as a movie like the evil dead that had all the, all the cast in the world, all the money in the world. It's, it's so impressive to see that done on the indie scale and the big budget scale and to have them be so similar, like to have these two things that if you put them side by side and adjusted, maybe the hives, you know, doomsday disco rave like look, I, they would look like they're from the same movie. Yeah. And I will say I have not seen the Evil Dead remake. I probably won't watch the Evil Dead remake. That seems that seems too much for for old Matt Monagle over here. Um <laughs> But I will say the one thing, the one thing that I, I will add to this mix is it's incredible how much mileage you get out of small choices of sound and costume. And for the purposes of the hive, the voice of the hive, when the creatures talk, 
the fact that they take it to a really low register as opposed to a really high register, the fact that they gave it a little bit of like almost like an, a, a Lovecraftian distortion to it, just taking something we've seen a million times before, which is the I'll swallow your soul thing and like flipping that and doing it. Let's do it low. Let's do it empty. Let's make the voice sound like it's coming from the bottom of a deep, deep, deep well. Those little aesthetic changes you make to the way that your monsters are presented gives it a like a very, very fresh new feeling. And so you really, you don't have to reinvent the wheel um, which I'm not suggesting, Donato, you were saying that this film should have done, but it's amazing how you can take something that is similar and like tweak an eye here and like a sound mixing element here. And suddenly you have creatures that feel very different and very unique as compared to something that on the surface of it is super similar. Yeah, it's and it's funny because like in other films like this and even like in the Evil Dead remake, it's much more rooted in chaos. Whereas this, it's like because it's a hive mind and it's intelligent it it's much more uh, not quiet but it's it's more reserved and thoughtful in what it does and it try instead of trying to physically destroy everything it it tries to mentally overpower people and we see that a couple times we see the hive mind kind of mm-hmm. try to mess with people by tapping into people's memories and messing with the person's head and it's, it's definitely a very different approach, but it works very well, especially, obviously, within the context of this film. Mm-hmm. And it's playing with things that are even that we haven't mentioned. Like there's a little there's a little sequence that has shades of hardcore Henry as we have a Russian scientist about to defend his lab from these invading hive minders. And it's a flashback sequence. So it's happened previously. And it's from his viewpoint at this point. And there's a gun pointed outwards and. Like it's there's just so many little things that this film plays with. I was so mad that that worked for me, by the yeah. way. I just got to say, like, I was so mad the first person stuff worked because I, it, I it gets me really frustrated. But it works. It works. It really works. It's, it works in the right and way. And they don't overuse it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a short scene. They don't overuse it. It's right where it needs to be. But again, it's all these little additives and the choice not to show Dr. Baker being Sean Gunn until the end of the movie. It's this interesting choice of we're seeing the back of somebody's head for I, I think three thirds of the film and then the choice to reveal three it. Fourths. But... Three fourths of the film, not three thirds of the film. Wow. Just three. <laughs> just throwing that out there. It's all, it's all right. It's been a long week already. You know what? I'm, I'm going to leave that in. I'm not even going to edit that one out. I was going to, I was going to try to do it again, but I'm not going to edit that one out. Yes. Three fourths of the film. Woof. <laughs> Monday recording sessions are hard. <laughs> oh, in any case, it is so impressive that the way that they can throw these little additives in. And again, these are all just stylistic choices. This is a director saying, wouldn't this be cool in first person? Wouldn't this be cool if we just had this mysterious element a little more instead of just having another Evil Dead ripoff? And to, for this to be the product that comes out of it, I, you know what? It still works. Yeah, it all works. All right. Well, last question for both of you then um, before we wrap this this evening. Uh, you know, we always like to talk about how this show or how the show, how the film was received. You know, what led to its release and what allows it or will allow it to be discovered in the future. You know, much was made about the fact that this was a Fathom release. This was one of those Fathom release films where that one night in AMCs across the country, you could live in Toledo or you could live in New York City and everybody has a fair chance to watch it. Um, and then no real theatrical release after that. So my two-part question for, for both of you, we're going to start with you, Molly, is do we think, having a little bit of distance now since this became a bit of a trend, do we think that Fathom releases ultimately help or hurt films, especially if they're not like properties like Batman animated movies and things like that? Do we think that Fathom releases are a good thing for movies like this? And yes or no, 
how do we ensure that this is a film that finds its audience later on? Is there a place for this in sort of this canon of mid 2010s horror films? Oh, that's a lot to unpack. Um, yep. <laughs> honestly, I, I think the Fathom releases can be good for certain films. I think it was not a wise choice for this film uh, because it's not a very well-known director. It's not a very well-known cast. Like there, there's no big draw to get people to do this. Whereas if I know, for example, they, I believe they did a Fathom event. It was for um, Three from Hell right Mm -hmm. yes yeah they did and i went to that and it's it they did like three nights or something and it was completely sold out every single showing and that's because it was the third film of a trilogy from a very well-known writer and director and like it was a no like people knew what they were getting into and they wanted to see it in theaters and i mean i think they ended up doing like a small theatrical release after that anyways but i feel like you can't do this kind of stuff with like with films that don't have an established audience already. And this is one of those films, like I I would be curious to know how many people actually went and saw this in theaters when it came out on a Fathom release, because I would be willing to bet it probably wasn't a huge number. I could have sworn I, when I went to go watch this to watch it again before coming on, um, I watched it on Amazon prime. I could have sworn that it was just on Netflix. Am I crazy? Was it not on Netflix recently? I have I don't remember. I don't this was this okay. movie was nowhere near my radar ever until okay. you brought it. To and I was going to say I do a streaming column where I scour Netflix often, and I don't think I've seen that on Netflix in the last okay. two years. Yeah, I might have imagined it then. Uh, maybe I was thinking of a different film because I feel like if films get releases like on Netflix or something for a time, I mean, granted, there's always going to be stuff like I don't not bottom of the barrel in terms of like they're bad but bottom of the barrel in terms of you have to dig to find them mm-hmm. <laughs> um but if they get on a streaming platform like that mo- they're gonna get more eyes on them I, and honestly at this point i think with how long it's been since this movie came out i feel like the only way for it to get more attention is one for podcasts and stuff to talk about it and people to write about it but also it, it would be great if it could get like on a streaming service like shutter or something because this is something that horror fans would love if they saw it, but people just don't know it even exists. <laughs> like, I, yeah, it's on Amazon Prime right now, so go watch it, everyone that's listening to this. But I, I don't think it would have shown up on my queue, or not my queue, but like my recommendations. I don't think it would have showed up if I just looked at horror releases. It's hard. I mean, I think at this point, yeah, it's, it's just going to be word of mouth is the only way this movie is going to get the recognition that it deserves, which is unfortunate. Um, and I feel like if it hadn't had such a shitty release, it could have been a very different story. Yeah, I think there is an allure to the Fathom events, Fathom release platform in the sense that if you are a tiny indie film, that probably would have just went straight to VOD or probably would have not even gone to a theater. You're going to go like, well, hell, Fathom events, I get to be in I'd be streaming all these megaplexes like all over the country for three days. Yeah, that's awesome. But, you know, you brought up a great point where, yeah, 31, 100% was a Fathom Events release. And, yep, I went to one in New York, sold out as hell because you had Rob Zombie. Like, like you have Rob Zombie's name, who is not only a filmmaker, writer, all these things, but a musician who has already the fan base that was going to be there. 
that is what you do Fathom Events for. You do the Fathom Events because you know it's going to shutter after that. You know it's already got the streaming lineup uh, that it'll get. And yeah, sure, Rob Zombie, we're going to bank on that. A movie like, I think a movie like The Hive, they see a 31, they see how well it does, and they go, well, yeah, screw it. Like, let's let's do that release model. And I guarantee you no one saw this at a Fathom Events because you're talking about a movie called The Hive that has no real stars attached to it that's going to have that pull factor. And also, there's a bunch of other movies called The Hive. There's even a bunch of other horror movies called The Hive streaming on Amazon Prime. So to have to set it apart, it was already like it was already behind the eight ball. It was it was already going to have to do so much just to stand out. And the fact that you went with the Fathom events release where you could you can't get word of mouth from those like those are basically you have opening weekend and that's it. And I'm sorry, like people probably aren't going to show up for a big event spectacle on something they would have paid four dollars for to rent on uh, VOD. And, you know, maybe that's maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's not wrong, but I I don't love the Fathom events whenever I see it's for something that doesn't have a built-in audience. Like a Fathom events to me should be like a musician documentary or something of that nature where you know what you're getting into and you're going to have a crowd atmosphere that is just like super fans. I don't think the Fathom events are built for things that should just try theaters for a few weeks to see if they can build momentum or just go to VOD. Don't even bother because then if it goes to VOD, you get, you get the same momentum building as possible. And a quick example I'll use, and it's an unfair example because it's the pandemic, so it's hard, but wrong turn, the remake was a Fathom Events. I reviewed it for that run. I got a copy of it to review. Luckily, I didn't have to go to a theater because, uh, you know, sorry, Inside Baseball critic stuff, but still, like, I got a screener link of it, so I got to review it for that initial run. No one gave a shit when I posted my review in the sense that, like, no one was really talking about it. It wasn't a conversation happening on Twitter at the time because, yeah, only a few or like, you know, only critics who were lucky enough to get the screening link got to see it because everyone else had one single night to go out to a theater and see Wrong Turn. But once it came out on VOD, it was all anyone was talking about on Twitter for like two weeks. So, yeah, the Fathom Events model, that is my take on it. If you are a small indie film, especially indie horror I would love to see you try anything else but a Fathom Events release. And yeah, how do we how do we reclaim the hive? It's streaming. All we can do is talk about it. All we can do is keep promoting it and hoping other people do see it because I, I hope people don't go now watch the preschool CGI show or preschool CGI adorable little uh, movie about a family of bees called the hive or the one about flesh eating ants called the hive. And the thorax team has to get called in to save an island. So there are so many hives you can stumble upon, but I hope you pick the one that we have talked about on this podcast. Especially because it's hard not to love Catherine Prescott. Like you said, she was on Skins and uh, she was also on a show that was on t- MTV for a season or two called Finding Carter, which I am probably one of the only people that watched that show, <laughs> but it was really good. Um, and she's great. Um, and honestly, there's a lot of good horror people in this because uh main actor gabriel basso was in super eight and then uh, and, hillbilly, and hillbilly elegy molly he was in hillbilly well, I yeah we got that oh, no, I didn't the, mention the, that. the little awards movie that couldn't <laughs> and then gabrielle walsh was in uh paranormal activity the marked ones mm-hmm. which is underrated in my opinion but that's a whole other conversation it's one of the best ones <laughs> that that's a conversation i'll yeah. gladly have because it's one of the best ones <laughs> <laughs> well uh, the only thing i'll add to to the end of this just is you know yes 
Donato and I talk a lot about like the film festival circuit. And I sort of feel like this might've been one of the last times, like the idea of rolling a film out over the course of a dozen different festivals across the United States. I think maybe distributors and producers have sort of realized it's a better distribution model than the fathom thing, right? Like if you premiere at a bunch of different horror festivals and you generate word of mouth and every time it comes, like everybody's a little bit more excited because they've heard from the last round of festival goers that it was really good. You know, you might not reach as many people on aggregate, but I do feel like it replicates the limited distribution model um, for films that are not even going to get that, right? They're, they're not even going to get the limited distribution model. So I, I sort of feel like this was probably chalked up as a grand experiment and that the horror film circuit in the intervening years has sort of shown a better way um, to do the same thing that they were trying to do here. And the only other thing I'll add, in addition to what you guys said, which I agree, like it's streaming, we've got to talk about it. People got to get excited about it. David Yaronofsky, Yarovsky is very much working. You know, he just did Brightburn. And whether you loved Brightburn or hated Brightburn, and I know there's a lot of people that were disappointed in that, there's no faulting the fact that it is a really high concept horror film, just like The Hive is a really high concept horror film. So if he's able to continue to work and if he's able to continue to string together movies, you know, it is the stuff that is high concept and mostly misses um, as a fan of The Empty Man. It's that stuff that like develops the most passionate fan bases. So like maybe the reception to Brightburn today or a year or two after its release is sort of muted, but in five years time and 10 years time, that movie for the people that love it, they're going to be so all about that film. And it's probably those folks they are going to inadvertently accidentally become big fans of the hive in the process too. So there's, there's time to see what Yaravesky does. He's, he's got a lot of, a lot of mileage and even his films that have already been released, I think still have a lot of mileage in the tank. And we'll kind of see where his reputation sits in a, another 10 or 15 years time. And that's it. That's it, friends. That is our that is our long episode. Uh, we ended up having a longer conversation about the film, but I couldn't cut us off because I liked everything we were saying. So The Hive is available on Amazon Prime. You should definitely go stream it. You should go watch this and uh, let us know what you think. And Molly, first, I want to say thank you, of course, for crossing the line and coming on the podcast. Uh, we're great to have you off the written portion of the site and onto the verbal portion of the site. Um, this is your opportunity to promote your stuff in addition to the certified forgotten stuff. You know, how do people follow you on social media? How do they see your, your horror apparel influencer uh, career that seems to be blossoming pretty nicely too? Where do they go to find that kind of stuff? Um, well, you obviously you can find my uterus horror articles on certified forgotten. Um, there should be a new one coming out soonish. Um, and yes. we can confirm that it is coming out soonish. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and then most of my film reviews right now are on my website, thebloggingbanshee.com. Um, and then I, the best way to keep up with the stuff that I'm doing is I'm mostly active on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my Instagram is uh, at blogging.banshee and my Twitter is at bloggingbanshee, no period for that one. <laughs> Got it. Donato, promote thyself. You can find me, as always, at Bomb on Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find all of our work on Certified Forgotten, all the fantastic writers who make that happen. So please continue to support the writers. We want to keep supporting the writers. We like doing that. It's fun. Also, live stream every Friday with Perry Nemiroff, The Merry Hour. So if you want to see my ugly mug on a, you know, on a screen and yell at me, by all means, keep doing that. So all the places you can find me, but again, at Bomb. Just hit up those three places and uh, I will make sure you hear about it all. Is the is the Merry Hour, is that a uh, beer pong show masquerading as a film show or is it a film show masquerading <laughs> as a beer pong show at this point? 
That's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both because we have too much okay. fun doing both of them. That, that's I will say honestly at this point. But uh, yeah, it really the is. The Merry Hour After Dark is always it's always fun when you, when you put down the movie commentary and you pick up the beer pong table. <laughs> it's our, always our goal just to bring our friends on and play beer pong. So to be able to do that and uh, talk movies too, you know, come on. What else do you need? Amen. And I got blacklisted for being terrible oh. at beer pong early in the show's run. So, so bad. Focusing me on there. So bad. But you can find my writing at Lab Splice. That's L A B S P L I C E on Twitter. Um, that's pretty. I mean, that's it. That's per, if if I have anything to say, I'll say it there. And Donato's right. You should definitely check out the website. You should read Uterus Horror. Um, we have it. It has its own tag on our CMS, which means that if you want to bounce through and read all the articles in one place, we make that super easy for you. And definitely, if you are uh, if you're interested in supporting a collection of really talented writers and growing the site, we would encourage you to visit our Patreon as well. We have links pretty much everywhere to that. Um, we'd, we'd love to have you be part of our little blossoming horror community. We think we got good stuff happening in the future, but Molly, again, thank you. I don't, you know, usually we have to say to our guests, we're like, Oh, thanks. Well, we hope to see you again soon. It's like, we, we're going to run an article from you in a couple of days <laughs> and then we're going to get to work on next month's article. So we don't have to say goodbye at all. We just have to say, Hey, we'll see you in a little bit. That's kind of nice. I like that. Yeah, it is nice. It's it's not a goodbye. It's a see you later. See you later. Let's all venture out into the virus hive mind world together and we'll tell our communal story about how things are going to be better. And it'll be especially better if people watch the hive. Well, that too. Yeah. Start by watching the hive. You, you'll get that joke a little bit better if you do. Donato, are you going to send us off in our normal manner? Demon went hive mind. Beautiful, man. Beautiful.